Greetings with lovers everywhere. I'm Etrain and welcome to Etrain Talks. And today I am so, so excited because I'm joined by the opinion columnist at the Washington Post, Alyssa Rosenberg. Alyssa is the journalist behind the article to build a delightful library for kids. You need these 99 books. She's interviewed parents from all sides of the political spectrum and asked them which books were perfect for a kid's library. From picture books to chapter books to middle grade and YA, Alyssa's list is a compilation of many brilliant reads. Now, without further delay, I'm so excited to welcome Alyssa Rosenberg to E-Train Talks. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I've been awaiting this interview for so long and now it's finally here. And when I woke up, I was, I just jumped out of bed because I was so, so thrilled. And I'm like, I'll be interviewing an opinion columnist from the Washington Post. And that's pretty cool. Something I can definitely check off my bucket list. Uh, well, it's pretty cool to get to write about children's books and other things for a living. So um, I I share your sense of like, wow, is this real life? Um, I, I've been doing this for a decade and still kind of can't believe that it's my job. So yeah, That sounds like my dream job. So I want to be like you when I grow up. <laughs> uh, that is entirely possible, I think. So you are off to a very good start. Thank you. And when writing your article about choosing books to help build a child's library, you listed 99 books that dozens of parents across the political spectrum shared as the books they love best. From the books listed, were there any themes or messages that you found to be the most prevalent of the books chosen? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, one thing I found really heartening about the list was that a lot of parents chose books that were challenging in some way. Um, and that were about introducing their kids to the realities of the world, whether that's through something like Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House Books, which are in some ways a pretty unvarnished look at life um, during westward expansion, or even something like Ender's Game, which you know is really intense and not something I would necessarily choose myself for a sensitive younger kid, but is you know was one of my favorite books as a teenager, and so. Um, I, I felt like, you know, it was it was exciting to me that people chose good books, which maybe sounds kind of silly, but, you know, people weren't picking books that were sort of preachy or safe, like across the political spectrum, people wanted their kids to read books that were challenging, that were honest about, you know, even big issues like racial difference or police brutality in some cases. Um, and, you know, that that so many of the choices were just so great and creative, right? And I will confess that I both cheated, I let the parents I talked to choose three books, and I let myself do like nine, and I waited until I was done. I, I waited until they had all made their submissions to write mine so that I could, um, you know, I could make sure to pick books that other people hadn't picked already. And people picked a lot of my favorites. So um, it was it was nice to see my taste validated. <laughs> yeah. That certainly so. sounds really nice. And I totally get the fact that it doesn't, it, well, it doesn't sound silly at all that you were happy that there were good books there because like some, no, it's so amazing that people weren't safe because the whole point of middle grade picture books, all these stories, is to kind of get out of your comfort zone. So like tackling topics that you might not necessarily agree with, but they exist and you have to really understand and accept that. 
Well, and I, you know, the books were challenging in other ways too, right? Yeah. I mean, something like, you know, Leo Liani's books are uh, Little Blue and Ye Little Yellow, which one of my friends recommended, um, is, you know, it's abstract art, it's color theory for kids. And so it's very visually sophisticated. Um, something like BJ Novak's The Book with No Pictures, which I actually think is one of the best children's picture book, uh, sorry, children's not a picture book, um, to come along in recent years are, you know, it's very conceptually sophisticated, right? It's a, I don't know if you've read it, but it's a joke on the person who's reading the book aloud because it looks like the kid has picked something sophisticated. Finally, it's not a picture book, but it's all about forcing the reader to say silly things out loud. Um, you know, the monster at the end of this book is, you know, introduces, you know, breaking the fourth wall to readers. And so, you know, something like the, even like the, um, the very melancholy tone of um, Chris Van Allsburg's The Wreck of the Zephyr. You know, these are books that are, you know, they're challenging in terms of topic, but they're also artistically challenging. They're also sort of conceptually challenging. Um, and I just, I love seeing parents trust kids to be smart, right? And I think that so many of our conversations about children's books don't assume that children are sophisticated readers. Um, and that that's something that drives me crazy. And so to have this group of parents come together and essentially offer a counterpoint to that was really heartening to me. Well, it sounds so heartening. And us kids, speaking from a kid's perspective, I'm totally not biased, but we are a lot smarter than we seem. And like, we can read these books that parents or adults might think we're not ready for them or maybe they don't agree with them but we are smart so that's just yeah. a lesson for all of you out there we're smarter than we look and were you, were there any books that you loved as a child that you would add to this list so many so many right I mean the idea of just picking you know nine or ten books is like honestly kind of torturous and there were things mm -hmm. that as soon as we published the list I was like what was I thinking, right? So I was kind of shocked that nobody nominated Little Women, um, which, you know, for me, for so many, um, you know, women and girls, it's just this sort of foundational book in part because it's, I mean, it's sort of a, it's set in the Civil War era and it's, you know, very much embedded, imbued with uh, the author's Christian values, but it's a book about sort of four different ways to be a girl and to be a woman. And, um, you know, it has resonated from generation to generation because that template is so useful. Everyone can find something, sort of a hook for themselves in it. And I love that book. I have cried over multiple movie adaptations of it. What was I thinking not putting it on there myself? And, you know, what? That's crazy. Um, you know, there, I, some people were interested that the Harry Potter books didn't make the list. Mm -hmm. um, and I wrestled with those because I think there's some really wonderful writing in them. Um, you know, I was trying to sort of fill in some other holes in the list, um, but it was, I mean, it was, that was kind of interesting to me that no one considered those completely essential. Um, you know, I could fill half this list with books by Peter Spear, who's this Dutch American illustrator whose work I love. A lot of it's out of print, so I didn't include some of it um, because I wanted it to be books that people could have access to. So, you know, I, Look, I grew up in a house that was full of books and full of kids' books in particular. And so, you know, limiting myself was not the most fun exercise I've ever had. But it's also a testament that, like, I think everyone who contributed to this list could have 
replace their picks a couple hundred times over. Um, and it's just a reminder of how much great stuff is out there and has been published and continues to be published. That's so true. And I can't imagine having to choose just nine books for a series of 99 books that you should have in your child's library. That must have been torture for a book lover like you. Yeah, it was not great. I, you know, I, it was one of those things where I don't like making sort of top 10 lists anyway. I'm kind yeah. of allergic to them. And so it was one of those like, okay, I'm just going to pick 10 of them and then I'm going to go. It's, I'm, I'm just not going to think about it too much. <laughs> so it was a little haphazard, um, but it was the only way I could sort of pull off the bandaid and get it done. Yeah. So my next question is, as a book lover myself, I'm so thrilled to have access to such an extensive book list. And I've added so many books now to my to-be-read list from your article. And do you also hope to read any of the books listed that you haven't dived into yet? And if so, which books? Or are there too many to list? Uh, I mean, there are a lot of them. Um, I'm really looking forward to Weasels, um, which sounds just like hilariously up my alley. The idea that you can have a book about like weasels on this quest for world domination is hilarious. Um, I, I love The Phantom Tollbooth growing up. I hadn't known that Norton Juster wrote other children's books. So I'm definitely looking forward to the Hello Goodbye window. Um, you know, there's a lot of Mo Willems I haven't read yet. Um, my kids are four and one, and so there's still a bunch of the Elephant and Piggy books I have to get through, but I haven't read um, the Knuckle Bunny books yet, so I was glad that someone put them on the list. Um, and I read about two-thirds of this list. Um, I was familiar with a lot of the other books, but um, those were ones that really stood out to me as things that I think I'm going to read soon. Um, well, I'm just curious, like, what on, what on the list made your to-read list? Wow, there are so many. I think that the majority was actually picture books. I can't name the amount. Like, I thought I'd read a ton of picture books because I've always been surrounded by books, but I have a lot more reading to do. And I also love the fact that you are going to read picture books because a lot of adults are like, oh, picture books are for babies or little kids, but picture books are really for everyone. So I love that you're um, going to dive into some more. And I also have to. My I have a stack right here of books to read, but when that's gone, it's going to be full of picture books and chapter books and all kinds of books, thanks to your list. Oh, good. I'm glad. Well, um, you will have to report back on me if any favorites emerge from this. But um, I don't know if you ever um, buy used books, but if you're looking, especially for any of the Peter Spear stuff, um, he, a lot of his stuff is on Alibris, um, which is a big, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a big used book site. Has a lot of stuff like Amazon and sort of mainstream, more like mainstream used book retailers don't always have. So highly recommend that for especially the sort of some of the more out of print uh, mid-century stuff. Well, thank you so much for that recommendation. I'm going to go tell my mom about that as well. <laughs> and so from the research gathered, or from your own personal experience, can you offer some suggestions for parents and caregivers to help foster a love of reading in their children? I mean, I think if you, I, I would say two things that were important to that, you know, helped me with when I was a kid and that I have found useful. Um, I think that, you know, making, reading with your kids, right? And that sounds so basic, but you know, making it very clear to your children that reading is time that they get with you. Um, you know, if it's possible to basically say you can have an unlimited amount of reading time, right? You know, we're we're not really a screens family in our house, um, at least not yet. 
you know, we watch some stuff together, although not a lot of it. Uh, but, you know, we have limits on screen time. You know, sometimes you have to leave the playground or, you know, stop making mud pies or <laughs> whatever. But we almost never say, you know, we can't read anymore. Um, you know, bedtime comes eventually. But, um, you know, if our kids ask us to read with us during the day, barring other constraints like us having to go to work, them having to go to school, we will pretty much always say yes to books. And so connecting books to, you know, parent kid together time, um, I think really helps foster the idea that, you know, reading is a warm and lovely thing that helps you connect. And the second is find books that you like and, you know, demonstrate to your kids that you enjoy them, right? I mean, if you're slogging through a bunch of Mother Goose classics that you don't really like and your kid sees that, they will see your lack of enthusiasm. And so, you know, um, our David Shipley, who's the editor of the Post Opinion section, recommended um, P.G. Woodhouse's Jeeves books. And those aren't necessarily, I mean, those are like British humor. Um, they're not necessarily books that people would necessarily think of kids' books, right? They're about this, you know, this hapless, uh, you know, sort of rich guy called Bertie Worcester and his butler, Jeeves. But there was something he really enjoyed reading with his kids because they're funny, they're full of great language. And I think that, you know, looking for things to read with your children that you're actually going to enjoy and then modeling that enthusiasm is really important, right? I mean, I always grew up knowing that my parents loved to read. Um, that just, you know, why would we live in a house that's completely covered in books if that wasn't the case? I saw my parents, and I saw my parents reading for pleasure a lot. Um, and even before I could read, I mean, one thing I'll do with my kids now, um, sometimes if my daughter just needs some quiet time, like, you know, she'll say, can you read your book and I'll read my book and I'll bring in whatever book I'm reading, I'll bring in my Kindle and I'll sit in bed with her while she looks at a pile of picture books she can't read yet, although she's really close. Um, and because she knows that I like to read um, and we'll talk about books that we're reading. She'll, you know, she asks what I'm doing after I go to bed. I'll say, yeah, you know, daddy and I are gonna read our books for a while. And so, you know, creating an environment in which your own love of reading is clear, um, I think is really, really vital for that. Those are two brilliant reasons, I have to say. And while they kind of sound basic, they are so not. Because we, like, from a kid's perspective, yes, we do pick up on, like, um, I always, I've been surrounded by books. My parents always read to me, and they liked to read to me, so hence my love of reading and same for you and your kids so and also just reading to kids is really important because not only does it make us love to read but we also just learn a lot from it as well like that's that's also no, that's another thing everybody we learn a lot when you read to us and yeah speaking of parenting could, I, that, could I say one more thing could oh, yeah, I say yeah. one more thing though quickly I think that one thing I would say is it's okay, um, I think, to talk to your kids about what you do and don't like in a book. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I will try for the most part to um, accommodate my daughter's tastes. Um, but I'll also tell her that, you know, I know you find reading this book over and over again, like it's comforting, it's relaxing. Um, 
But for mommy, it's not like it's not as interesting to me as sharing a couple of different stories or, you know, I <laughs> we've been reading a dictionary together a lot lately, a Sesame Street dictionary. And I'll explain. It's like I, you know, OK, it's like we can do a couple pages of this. But to me, it's not as interesting as reading something with a story. And so, you know, talking about those things like without being unkind or dismissive, but, you know, being honest with your kids about and, you know, using those questions of taste to be sort of explanatory, um, I think is better than sort of reading something like half-heartedly or quickly or, you know, with sort of an obvious air of discomfort. Um, I, I think it's better to be honest but kind, um, especially not necessarily with like a one-year-old who's like, please, can I read this picture book about babies, you know, for the 47th time. But for a kid who's old enough to under, you know, have some degree of reason and talking about it, like, I think that, I think that's better. And I think it's, you know, that's part of a foundation of sort of an honest parent-child relationship, right? Like, you know, it's kids know when you're phoning it in or, you know, <laughs> um, or doing something sort of unwillingly. Um, and I think it's just, it's better to be honest where you can um, at a level that young kids can understand. I love that. That You're so right about that. You do need to have an honest relationship. And speaking of parenting, that's kind of what you write about in, like, for your opinions from, like, what books that you should read to a lot more. So can you tell everybody what it is you write about and why you decided to dive into that section of, I guess, opinion columnist E. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I actually, I didn't start my career writing about parenting. Um, I worked at a political, a sort of, um, calling it a political publication, a publication that sort of covered Washington um, and then another magazine that was sort of about how the federal government works. And I started a blog um, when I was doing that about pop culture. Which, you know, I, like I said, I grew up, you know, just really immersed in books and I missed out on a lot of just pop culture when I was a kid. And so I, you know, when I was a young adult, like just sort of a couple years out of college, I found everything I was seeing on TV and music videos just totally fascinating because I didn't take it for granted. And so eventually I started doing that full time and then I got hired to work at the Post. And so for a long time, I was very focused on pop culture. And, you know, I think it's this is going to sound really cliche, but, you know, when I had my, when I started having kids, I found, I mean, I find being a parent really interesting, right? Um, and, you know, there are some parent, there are some experiences that are sort of common to parents that are like kind of a cliche, right? It's like, everyone thinks their baby is the most fascinating baby in the world. Everyone is amazed by how tired they are the first year of a baby's life. But, um, you know, I, I just found all of these questions around, you know, how do you find great childcare in a society that's not set up for that? Um, how do you design a school system that gives everyone, you know, fair opportunities? Why, you know, why don't we consider what kids need sort of, as a primary question in our policy making. Um, you know, and I think, I hope with my column that I can address being a parent with the same sort of fresh set of questions um, 
about why things are the way they are. I hope I can approach parenting the way that I approach pop culture um, and sort of question some of that received wisdom and that sense of like, oh, this is just the status quo. Oh, of course, it's really hard to find childcare. Um, of course, you know, um, we don't have, we have a system that says kids have to go home from school when they're sick, but not a system that says that someone has to be available to take care of them, right? Um, so I wanna, I mean, my kids are awesome. They're the coolest people that I know and they deserve everything. And I feel like my job is to write about parenting, but also to suggest, you know, to hopefully bring the same passion for my kids to sort of kids more broadly, because, you know, they're, there are all of these sort of cheap and easy ways to like say that you're giving kids a voice, right? Like asking kids flip questions about who they're gonna, you know, who they think should be president or about policy ideas that are sort of intended to be like, oh, kids are so cute, they don't really know what's going on. Um, but trying to imagine a world where, you know, kids and parents were treated as if they were of primary importance um, and just sort of using the power of the Washington Post to do that. Um, you know, it's something that I'm trying to do. I'm kind of at the early stages of making that switch. Um, and I hope I'll do a good job, but, um, you know, I'm still, I'm still learning what arguments work and figuring out where, what some of the tough questions are. So that was probably a longer answer than you needed, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah. And you really take the term question everything to heart. And I love that about opinion columnists because you really, because there's so much about the world that we need to question. I feel like your job is so important. It gets you think, but we it also gets us thinking. So I think that what you're doing is very admirable. And it's also a field, journalism, that I have always wanted to be a part of. So what have you always loved writing? And did you just want to be a journalist or a columnist? A part That's of... The post forever is that something you've always wanted i don't think i even dreamed that it would poss be possible for me to be a washington post columnist when i was growing up although i have always i have always been a writer um i my first job was actually writing children's book reviews in the uh kids page of my local paper in vermont when i was growing up um, i got paid in gift certificates to the local bookstore and I did a lot of journalism stuff, you know, I, um, in high school, I was involved with, an, you know, an, an alternative newspaper and then ended up as the editor of like the mainstream paper when we sort of did a takeover. Um, I wrote for the opinion section of my newspaper in college. Um, but I also did a lot of, you know, sort of activist and political work. And for a long time, I thought that might be sort of more where I ended up. Um, and then I took a writing class in college. Um, and with this professor named Linda Peterson, um, who, who died a while ago, but, um, and it was this class called Daily Themes. And she said, this class is a great test of whether you wanna be a writer because it involves doing what writers do, do, which is getting up and writing 500 words every day, whether you feel inspired. And that's how the class worked. You had to write a piece every day for the entire semester. Um, and you were assigned sort of a topic or a prompt um, and it was competitive. So there were, you know, um, 120 people in the class. Every one of them was filing five pieces a week and the best ones would get read the next week. Mm -hmm. So um, 
And she said, you know, this is just, this is a test of whether you want to be a writer. And I just loved it, right? I loved, you know, sort of having an assignment. I loved the sort of competitive aspect of it. Um, and I loved, you know, trying to write to that, the shape of that 500 words. And by the end of that class, I knew journalism was what I wanted to do. And I got really lucky in some ways. I got an internship at The Atlantic. Um, the summer before my senior year, I got this job as a fact checker at National Journal, the sort of, you know, politics and policy magazine. Um, and I was able to, you know, sort of build my way up to my dream job through my blog. I mean, sort of like what you're doing now, um, you know, sort of getting, getting those reps in and yeah. doing it all of the time. Um, you know, I think that it's been, has it really been 20 years? It's been more than 20 years since I took that class, which is, no, that's not right. It's been almost 20 years since I took that class, which is wild to think about. Like, when did I become almost 40? Um, and I think journalism has changed a lot in that time. Um, and, you know, I think one thing to think about is sort of that question that my professor, you know, asked me, it's like, is this what you want to do every day? Um, and look, I think it's great that you are doing this podcast and sort of doing, you know, what you're doing is sort of what blogging was for people my age. Um, and, it, you know, by the time you are graduating from college, getting ready to go out on your own, it may be something totally different, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, experimenting with the medium, you know, playing with it, seeing what parts of it you like, um, you know, I think will be really important. Um, but it's, I mean, it's a harder business to get into than it used to be. There are just yeah. fewer jobs. And, um, you know, I, I sometimes think that people shouldn't become journalists if there's anything else that they would be happy doing. But if it's the thing you would be happy doing, it is the best job on earth, right? Because your job is to go find things out and to try and be honest and clear and in opinion journalism to persuade people um you know there's no other job that lets you follow your curiosity in quite the same way um and in that sense it's a lot like reading well i love that and i want to be a journalist even more you're and if you were thinking that was a long answer that was awesome and <laughs> i want to take that class that you took almost 20 years ago that sounds like a lot of fun and very challenging competitive it has everything that i'd want to do so yeah and it's you know i mean some of it was just like i wrote things for that class that were bad right you know yeah. and um journalism i mean journalism is an art in that in the sense that it can be done as an art right it can involve beautiful mm -hmm. writing and involves careful construction but it's also a craft right like you have to make yeah. widgets and they have to get out the door so um yeah <laughs> Um, it was a reminder of both of those aspects of the job that like sometimes you get lucky and you transcend, but some of the time you just make widgets. Yeah. Well, my next question is one that I've asked a lot of people. So I've spoken with authors and literacy advocates about the growing number of schools and communities trying and sadly succeeding in banning books. So I'm just curious, as this is a concern that is definitely not new and seems to be growing stronger and stronger lately. Will you share your thoughts on the recent book bannings taking place in our country? And do you have any suggestions for our listeners 
to kind of combat the book bans? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that there are always sort of waves of these um, reactions. Um, Nat Hintoff, who was at the American Civil Liberties Union, actually wrote a young adult book about book banning um, called The Day They Came to Arrest the Book, uh, which is probably out of print, but um, you should be able to find it somewhere used. And so it's a useful reminder that um, these these things happen kind of cyclically, um, sort of in conjunction often with larger moral panics. And, you know, I think that for parents in particular, it can be really hard to find the time to like get out and show up to school board meetings, to curricular review. Um, but it's really important for parents who support the availability of a really wide range of books in um, in libraries in particular to show up and make that case whenever they can and to resist the impulse in all cases to say, okay, well, it's fine to object to one set of books that violates my values in this way, but we have to stand up for these books, right? I mean, libraries in particular are supposed to have something for everybody in the community and not everybody in the community is gonna have the same values. Um, I also think it's important for parents to affirm the importance of sort of active participation in what their kids read, uh, right? And so, you know, I think for parents, I think the greatest answer to parents to say, oh, this shouldn't be available in my in the library because my kid might find it to say, well, why aren't you involved in going to the library with your kid? Why aren't you picking books out together? Why aren't you reading with them even beyond the age when they need to be read too? Um, you know, I think debates about curriculum are tougher, right? It's, um, and, you know, I think there are certain areas where, you know, both laws and tradition suggest that parents, we do give parents a lot of discretion in terms of making sure that their kids can opt in to certain kind of experiences. You know, we do that with uh, like sex and health ed. Um, you know, in America, we give like the longstanding tradition is to give parents a lot of domain over their children. Um, and that's that's a hard sort of cultural norm to push back against, right? And so I think that you know parents and kids who want to maintain expansive curriculums probably shouldn't make the argument that you know parents don't have a right to be involved in their children's education because they do, um, and that's that's a sort of important bedrock principle. But I think you know making the broader case for specific books that are challenged, right? I mean. Being able to come to a meeting, um, you know, at a school, at a school board, and say, you know, I read this book. This is what's in it. This is what I took away from it. Um, and you know, just showing as much support for teachers and librarians and principals as possible, even when you know a political decision goes against you. Because I think that, look broadly, you know, all polling and research shows that. People support their local, the vast majority of people support their local teachers, they support their local librarians, they trust them. And making that trust sort of manifest and evident is going to be one of the best ways to push back against these sorts of complaints. Um, and, you know, I think it's important for kids to have a voice too. And that means, you know, if there's a school, like, a school board governs the kind of education that you get if you have you live in a city or a town with school board control. Um, if you live in a mayoral control city like I do, um, you know the the mayor controls your education, and you may not be able to vote yet, but you have the right to know 
what kind of decisions are being made on your behalf. And if you feel like those decisions aren't on your behalf, ask your parents if they can help you zoom into a school board meeting or go in person. Um, you know, if there are curriculum review meetings, like see if you can go after school. Um, I think that, you know, I, you, you may not have a vote, but you have a voice um, and you should use it. And so, um, you know, look, I, I think these conversations and these, you know, waves of banning will come around again when you're adults. And if you get involved now, you'll be ready to have them, those debates again when you're a parent. Um, but you deserve to have a say and to be heard now. Um, I also think, um, you know, books are amazing. Um, highly recommend magazines from um, both Cricket Media and Highlights. Um, Cricket has um, magazines for kids starting with Baby Bug, which is really simple stories and rhymes and ideas. Um, they're in basically indestructible like magazine cardstock. So, um, you know, we have baby bugs that have lasted through two successive children, which are amazing. And then they can graduate to, you know, Ladybug, Cricket, et cetera. And so they're a great introduction to short stories. Um, both those and High Five, uh, which has, you know, both stories and, you know, recurring comic strips and games and stuff, um, I think are a really great place to start too. Um, and in some cases are sort of less of an investment than an entire children's book library. Plus it's great to get mail. Yeah. And those are three great recommendations. I actually do receive crickets, so they, their magazines are amazing. And they, they share a lot of information, but it's also fun. They make learning fun, which is great. And I, I still remember getting my first edition of Cricket and just like the little cartoon strips with the like the bugs around the side. Um, mm -hmm. I thought we're amazing, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that parents should definitely not underestimate anything where their kids can get books in the mail, especially or books or stories in the mail, especially by subscription. It's it's another way that reading can feel incredibly special, right? It can make you feel singled out and noticed. Now it's time for my final question. The question I ask everyone I interview, if you could be or meet any literary character, it could be your favorite author, your favorite book protagonist, who would it be and why? I feel like this question is getting back at me for torturing the participants in my project by forcing them to choose three essential children's books. Um, that is really hard. I think, oh man, uh, I'm just gonna have to rip off the bandit and pick one. Um, I think I would choose Ender Wigan from Ender's Game. Um, I don't know if you've read Ender's Game yet. Um, I have not. How old, remind me how old you are? I'm 12. So. Okay. Um, so Ender's Game and its sequel, Speaker for the Dead, are super intense. Um, they're about this little boy who's like recruited in, he's basically like recruited into this military academy. He's like born to go there, basically. Um, and so he goes away from his parents when he's like five years old um, and trains to like basically fight in this like video game style war and um it is a story it's really it's like brutal in some ways it's really painful but it's also ender's game and speaker for the dead end up being incredible books about empathy and being able to see from someone else's perspective and to be able to do that in the worst possible circumstances and i think 
you know, if Ender Wigan were a real person, I would want to talk to him about what it's like to make that leap, right? Because that's what literature does. That's what I think journalism at its best can do. Um, and trying to sort of find and maintain that humanity and generosity of spirit is something that I think is just one of the most admirable things a person can do. And being able to try to talk to a fictional character who did that on sort of the grandest scale possible, um, I think is something that as an adult, I would just find really useful. Well, I actually have a friend named after the Ender in Ender's Game, which is his parents love the book. So I think that's really cool. I, so that's awesome. I have some questions about his parents' judgment. Has he read <laughs> the book yet? I think, I'm not sure. I'll have to ask him. Yeah. Um, once the two of you have read that book, think about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I appreciate that your parents, uh, your friend's parents are my kind of nerd, clearly. <laughs> so that's awesome. Um, yeah. Who would you pick? It's not fair that you get to ask me that question. Who would you pick? Oh, karma for asking everybody this. Okay, it's right back at me. Um, it's pick so one. I won't hold you to it. it. No, it's fine. It's just so... I feel like I should have an answer. I ask people so many times. But I think if there's one person that I'd like to meet, it would probably be... Oh gosh, this is so hard. Um, any character. I don't know. It's <laughs> any character who faces adversity and tackles it, but also not like not through force, but through their words, and also just has empathy. I feel like it's there's. I guess off the top of my head, Logan. I don't know. It's kind of it's a brand new book. Um, Logan Foster from the Unforgettable Logan Foster. So. He's it's a middle grade story and he's been bullied. He's an orphan. He's been bullied, um, but he has an eidetic memory and he's just brilliant. And although he's might be, appear to be scrawny and small and nerdy, he's really fierce and strong. And I kind of want to be like him as the book nerd that I am. Like after reading his the book, I just emerged as like Logan Fierce and that's that's kind of a book that really has stuck with me and I just interviewed the author yesterday so it's on my mind nice I feel like the hipster answer to this question is like Severus Snape right it's like <laughs> you know how do you like what's it like to be misunderstood what's it like to be voluntarily misunderstood for like decades man <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but yeah no I think that's you know, and look, the truth is that we do meet our favorite characters every time we read them. They're always with us. Um, that's true. And that's one of the best things about a good book. That you are 100% right. And everybody, I have just loved this interview. And I'm so grateful that you were able to join me and take time out of your day, Alyssa. To, you had such thoughtful and insightful answers that, and you made me, you, you made me feel like I was like, you're just so smart. Like, <laughs> I'm, that's, that's really nice of you to say you're amazing. And I will happily yeah. come back anytime to talk about books. Thank you. And I have to get to reading all the recommendations from your article. And everybody, you can find Alyssa's article in the description of the video and podcast. You're going to really, really enjoy it. And I guarantee that you'll walk away 
with way like so many recommendations for you to read because there's there's sh- there's no like set age for books. Books are for everybody, and you'll get you might find a picture book that you really want to read, a middle grade book, YA, any book, and you're gonna love it. I can. So yeah, thank you so much, Alyssa. It's been such a treat, and everybody, read her article and all of them. They're very interesting profound and you're gonna walk away questioning the world a lot more than you may have before and until next time keep on reading and i'll see you in the next one bye